those of you that were able to greet us at the open house yesterday, I'm grateful. I'm here with uh, my family, with Elijah and Isaiah and Dow. Uh, they're sitting in the back here, and you can greet us at the end of the service if you have time. Um, I'm thankful so much for the, the pastoral leadership here. I love those brothers, um, Ben and Chris and Caleb. And uh, Caleb is always so kind to me. He gives me double shot espresso between services. So uh, the sermons get quicker and quicker every service. And not really kidding. Um, so all God's people said amen, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but I'm just so thankful that uh, I can be here to celebrate um, Christmas and just the the birth of the gospel in Palestine 2,000 years ago and, and that we can have lights and warmth and heat and freedom to come and gather in um, without, without problems, without weather, and that we're all here by God's grace. So let's pray and ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Our good God in heaven, would you be pleased to open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. And may Jesus be magnified, and may our hearts be encouraged and lifted up in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. And Christmas is, I love Christmas. It's a wonderful time of the year. It's a season of joy and excitement and anticipation and laughter. And, and then we know the statistics that for many people, Christmas is the most discouraging, depressing time of the year. Um, maybe relationships, finances, it's always something causing disappointment, loneliness, mourning, um, unmet expectations at the end of the year. And as Christians, we sing that great Christmas hymn, one of my favorites, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God up here. And when you sing that, there's a groaning, an inner desire that you agree, you agree with that lament, with that longing for the revealing of the Son of God. When the clouds will be split and the king on a white horse rides in to call out his redeemed. And 1 Thessalonians 4:17, we will be caught up together with the saints in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord, never to be departed ever again, always together with the Lord. And we long for that day. But until that great day comes, the promises can feel like fading dreams, like a mirage in the desert sometimes. And you struggle maybe with the promises of God's lavish, extraordinary kindness and goodness. And you, maybe you've read verses out of Psalm 84. There's a popular song that was written years ago that repeats much of Psalm 84. It says, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Maybe we all struggle to believe those promises. That last promise, 
How is that verse true when there's so many things that most of us, all of us, do not experience in this life? So many unmet expectations, so many unanswered prayers, so much grief, so much sorrow, so much regret. What does the psalmist see that makes him prefer the lowest, most insignificant place in the kingdom of heaven instead of relaxing in the high life with the rich and the comfortable in this life? The answer is found in the Lord's giving, bestowing favor and keeping nothing good from his people. In other words, giving every good thing to his people. Another way of saying it is that the reason it is better to desire being a Christian, a follower of God, even in pain and poverty and loss, is because God favors us and lavishly gives us all good things. The answer is found in God's unending, immeasurable, inexhaustible generosity in Jesus Christ. That's key. You must be in Christ for these things to be true. And Christmas certainly celebrates God's gift to us, yet we only celebrate it rightly, the birth of Christ, if we celebrate the reason he came in the first place, to die in the place of of sinners. So don't let the sweetness of the cradle overshadow the scandal of the cross. Celebrating Christ the child over against Christ the crucified is like receiving a wrapped present and rejoicing in it for its wrapping and never opening it. Christmas is not mainly good news because Jesus came to live among us It is certainly part of it, but Christmas is finally good news because Jesus came to die in our place so that God would be among us and tabernacle and dwell among us on the new earth. And if you're taking notes and want to know the main point of the message, somebody asked you if they had to miss the sermon, what was the main point? You cannot outgive God. Or another way of saying it, Nothing, nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. Nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. How does God bestow favor? How does he give us all good things? How is that even possible for those of us who, who labor and, and tarry under the burden of the curse in this life? How does this truth free us? To give our money and our time and our ambitions and our lives with cheerfulness and glad-hearted contentment. Well, the first step to answer that question is to ask another question. Well, what has God given us? What is the gift that God has given us that validates, that demonstrates, that proves his generosity? Well, I believe... One of the best answers is found in the book of Romans. In my opinion, Romans is like the Himalayas of the Bible. And again, in my opinion, Romans 8 is Mount Everest. 
in Romans 8.32, a plaque on our wall wherever, wherever we live in the world, is the summit. It doesn't get much better than this. I'm going to just read the paragraph and we'll make, I'll make a few comments. And we know, not just feel, not just think, we know, we know that for those who love God, all things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul asked the question, what then shall we say to these things? In other words, Paul is challenging Anyone who would try to explain the goodness and the promises of God better than this. He's saying, it can't get any better than this. These truths, the security of God's love for his saints is so glorious that they deserve to be said in another way. In other words, write another poem, paint another picture compose another hymn, sing another song, tell another story. And here is Paul's attempt to re-say what he just said in a different, more succinct way. So Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? And so if you stood before the court of heaven and Satan was the prosecuting attorney, Satan does not have to tell a lie to condemn you. All he needs to do is to tell the truth for the first time in his existence. And he could just talk about your father, Adam, and his guilt that was credited to you. Or he could just reveal one minute of your dirty secrets. That would be more than enough evidence to cast you into punishment forever. All the weight of the law coming down on you for your guilt. God the judge looks to Christ as your defense attorney. And Jesus says, it's true. But I paid the debt. And I obeyed the law perfectly in the place of the accused. And all my righteousness is credited to him. And the judge looks upon you as both innocent and righteous. It's not that the judge is only no longer against you. That's good news. But more than that, the judge is totally for you. It is good news, Romans 8.1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
but it gets better than that. God is for you. And then if there's any remaining discontent complaints of bad things happening to Christians, Paul asks one of the heaviest, most hope-giving rhetorical questions that essentially silences all questioning and complaints of God's mysterious, bitter providences. He says this, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Silence in the courtroom. Nobody can argue against the logic of God. God cannot be called into question again. So any accusation against God's goodness for the Christian in suffering is unsustainable. It's over. You cannot outgive God. You cannot exhaust his generosity. There is nothing too wonderful for the Lord. All things that you experience, pain or pleasure or even joy, happiness or exhaustion, grief, it's all lovingly designed by the hand of God for your good. He is powerfully working all things for your good and joy in Christ. And he has promised, he has given, covenanted himself to you from eternity past to eternity future. As the Puritans would, would famously say, you know that God won't stop loving you because he never began. He has always loved you. From all eternity, he has loved you in Christ, foreknown in Christ. You have been in Christ in God's mind. He has looked down on his people and loved you. So Paul asks the question, if God is for us, who or what can be against us? The answer, nothing. Why? Because he did not spare his own son. Now, there, there's implied in that is that it's Jesus deserved to be spared. This, this wasn't just that Jesus died. It's just not he lived a life and then died. It was a butchery. He wanted to be spared. He showed, God showed no mercy to the Son of God on the cross so that God can be rich in mercy for us. So in other words, God was rich in wrath on that tree so he can be rich in mercy and set us free. God is totally for you. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God could do the hardest act of love imaginable, sending his son to be born, to fulfill the law, and then to be slaughtered, butchered for his enemies, why wouldn't he do what is so much easier? Namely, giving born-again believers in the resurrection every good desire of their hearts. And he will. He has given you his son as the greatest gift, and whether you lose your most valuable, treasured, earthly health, wealth, friendships, loved ones, relationships in this life, or whether you give yourself sacrificially in his service and pay for it in your body all your life. He gives you 
all things in Christ and withholds nothing from you. You inherit Christ and all that is Christ's. Because we are co-heirs and brothers with Christ, we inherit all of his inheritance and all things are yours because you're in Christ. So all of the blessings of Eden that the curse spoiled and robs us from in this life, that those blessings will be ours in the, in the new creation and more. What Adam forfeited in the garden, Christ fulfills for us a millionfold. Every good desire unfulfilled in this, li- in this life will be satisfied and more and more and more and more in the next life. C.S. Lewis well said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can truly satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. You see, you cannot outgive God, and there is nothing too wonderful for the Lord. Abraham is an example of a man who gave God his most treasured earthly possession, Isaac, and his reason for living, because he trusted God's promise to provide. And ultimately, his story points to the best of all stories, God giving his son for the salvation of sinners. So if you remember the story of Abraham in obedience, he takes Isaac to the mountain. And Abraham's last words to his servants before taking Isaac alone to the sacrifices are very revealing. In Genesis 22:5, 5, he says, stay here with the donkey. And I and the lad, and the grammar is broken. It's not proper grammar, and it's on purpose because Abraham is he's taking on the burden of this moment. He's putting himself first. I and the lad and the, and the boy will go over there. And notice how the verbs are written. And we will worship, and we will return to you. This is probably the verse that the writer of Hebrews must have saw demonstrating, proving Abraham's confidence in Isaac's resurrection because the Hebrew verbs are in the plural. We will go and we will worship and we will come back to you. Even verb tenses are inspired for a purpose. And Isaac, probably still confused, he asked his father in uh, verse 8 of Genesis 22, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And then Abraham was preparing to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not spared your own son, your only son from me. This is the verse Paul is quoting in Romans 8:32, But God did not spare his own son. This is what he's quoting. Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of the son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is seen to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Or in Hebrew, the other way to translate it, On the mount of the Lord, he will be seen. And Hebrews 11 makes clear that Abraham believed in the certainty of Isaac's resurrection. 
He had faith in God's provision of a, a substitute, a resurrection. He believed so strongly that God's promises of blessing would finally come in the resurrection that he was willing to take a knife and slay his one and only son, Isaac, whose name means laughter. In other words, he was to kill his source of laughter, Sarah's laughter. Laughter was on the altar, and Abraham was to put it to death. And at first glance, it seems unlikely that Abraham could have come to the conclusion that God would raise Isaac from the dead. But a closer reading of the story, it becomes clear that the whole point of Isaac's birth as the child of promise is to answer God's question to Sarah in Genesis 18:14. God poses this question to Sarah after she laughs. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? And because the whole expectation of this coming Messiah hangs on Abraham's faith in God's promise to bless the nations through Isaac, his, and then through the seed, which we know is Jesus, all the Messiah, messianic promises hang on this seed coming through Isaac. The main question about our life and our, eterni- our eternity, and indeed one of the interpretive questions of the whole Bible, is to answer just that. Is there anything too wonderful or is there anything too marvelous is there anything too difficult for the lord the way god answered that question for sarah goes like this well sarah's desperately wants a son and she's both barren sarah's just too old god promises her a son and so how does she respond she laughs in disbelief god could only do this if he is a god according to romans 4:17 who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In other words, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's, a, it's an analogy. It's a pattern of things to come. Her lifeless, barren womb was like a dark, sealed tomb. It was empty and void, in need of the miracle of life, a light out of darkness, creation out of chaos, life from the dead. This promise of the miracle child would cause them to laugh in disbelief. But then the fulfillment of this miracle child would cause them to laugh with relief, with thanksgiving, with joy. But not only because, not only would God give this 90-year-old woman who's barren a son, But through the Son would all the nations be blessed. Well, how so? How are the nations blessed? People from all the nations will receive reconciliation with God, peace with God, and so be adopted into his family forever. And this salvation would only come through Jesus, the Messiah, the seed, the Son of God and the Son of Man. This offspring of Abraham would bring peace and goodwill to all those upon whom God's favor rests. He would be the source of eternal laughter and joy for all the peoples who, like Abraham, would rest and receive the promises of God through faith alone. And so, 
because God is faithful to his promise to give life out of a dead womb, therefore Abraham trusts God that he could be faithful to raise back to life Isaac as though if he were dead. God did it the first time. Why wouldn't he do it again? Since Isaac shouldn't even exist, why shouldn't he rise from the dead? Nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. God is not just the promise giver. He's the promise keeper. Abraham's faith in God's promise to give him a son at his old age is the same faith that gave him the strength to get up early in the morning by himself on his own initiative, not sleeping in, not procrastinating, not putting it off, get up, pack up the mule, split the wood. Every time he splits the wood, he's thinking about this motion. I'm going to plunge it into my son eventually. He's already burned the bridges in his mind. He's already crossed the line in his mind. And then to walk up the mountain with his curious son, a nervous servant who knew he hadn't brought a lamb for a sacrifice. This faith in the promise-keeping God is what gives him the strength to sharpen the knife even and bring food and water to feed his son along the journey, knowing that these might be the last meals for a while, not sure, they would have together unless God raises him from the dead. But nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. And then as they get to the spot on the mountain, Abraham's heart likely is beating out of his chest, his face flush, his beard probably hiding his quivering chin and his eyes stinging with dripping sweat as he looks into the wide eyes of his son who just can't figure out what his father is thinking. And Abraham explains to Isaac and assures him, Isaac, nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. And before Isaac can protest and run away, Abraham grabs him, straps him to the altar, raises his knife above his head, and assures himself one last time that through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And that offspring has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Nothing is too wonderful for the Lord. This Lord who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. In Abraham's heart, his laughter died. And at the last moment, veins bulging, heart pounding, sun anxious, the angel of the Lord calls to Abraham and says, Stop. Now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not spared your son, your only son, from me. And there God provided a ram in the place of Isaac. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? And you cannot outgive God. Remember what the text said the Lord will provide as it is to this day, on the mount of the Lord, he shall be seen. Now, fast forward 2,000 years, the same mountain, Mount Moriah, not far from the place of sacrifices in Jerusalem's temple. God's son, the Lamb of God, the Ram of God, who takes away the sin of the world, was carrying wood on his back for the sacrifice. The Lord provided 
the lamb, and he was seen. And there on the cross, that Christmas gift was cut open. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, He was revealed in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Emmanuel, on the cross, in the place of sinners, giving himself for us. He took the only thing that we have to give, and what is that? Our sin, our debt. This is the only thing we contribute to God. And there on that cross, he called out, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer was the same answer as in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, Father, if it be according to your will, take this cup from me. What was the answer? No mercy. Not a minute, not a second of mercy. God was rich in wrath in that moment so that he might on us be rich in mercy forever. And God was pleased. God was pleased to crush his son. The son of God, given up, forsaken, that sinners might be given his inheritance and adopted as sons. And the reason God is with you as Emmanuel and for you and not against you is because of what God gave us on the cross, the great Christmas gift exchange. God gave you all that Christ earned and owned, his sonship, righteousness, and all things, and most importantly, himself. You cannot outgive God. Just when you think you've given anything to God, he gives back a thousandfold. Even a cup of cool water given to a little disciple will be rewarded in the resurrection of the just. You cannot outgive God. Whether in much or in little, we can be content because Christ is the greatest gift. And as Augustine would say, he who has Christ in all the world has no more than he who has Christ alone. And I love this, this passage in Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, notice the, hype, notice the superlatives, the, the emphases. Notice how much... Paul is emphasizing these promises. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. I, I love the, the song, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing, and Charles Wesley is, he's quoting various passages and one of the passages he famously quotes is from malachi 4 2 about the return of the lord the day of the lord there's judgment and fire for the enemies of god but in verse 2 it's good news for us but for you who fear my name the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings 
And this is how the saints of God, the redeemed, are going to respond. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And if you've ever seen a a newborn calf or a newborn animal who's just full of life and just amazed at every part of God's creation, it's it's amazing to think that the people of God are going to be bursting with joy. We are going to be exploding with excitement to the point that even even those of us who struggle with ailments and frailties and brokenness in our bodies, they will be healed and then some. We will be leaping with joy and laughing and laughing with thanksgiving, not in disbelief, but laughing in relief because the king has come and he has brought healing in his wings. And so we sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail, incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel, hail the heaven-born prince of peace, hail the son of righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. You cannot outgive God. And is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for loving us, giving us the opportunity to hear your word in our language, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and opening our hearts and when we are dead in sins and trespasses you made us alive in christ and would you be pleased to refresh us this morning as we go out and remember jesus born of david savior for all those who like abraham put their faith in you and receive the promises of god and it's in your name jesus that we pray amen